I have to say that I grew up a lot the same way. And uh, you've probably heard all kind of proverbs that we quote to our kids as they're coming along, you know, like birds of a feather flock together. So if you're out with that carousing bunch, well, that's what you're going to be. Or, um, you know, we, ha- we have uh, different things like a bad company corrupts good morals. And we have the idea that uh, if you hang with the wrong people, they're ultimately going to bring you down. And even the scripture, in fact, does give some uh, seeming support to that concept um, because, you know, the Bible teaches, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And what fellowship has light with darkness? And uh, those of us who have uh, made our commitment to Jesus Christ have turned our back on the world. Well, we have to put that all together in a, in a total context of what Jesus is talking about and what the Scriptures are teaching. And certainly, the Bible is not telling us that we should sever all ties with unbelievers. It really has to do with what's in the heart. It has to do with the matter of the heart and what the motivation and the purposes are. Um, if you enjoy uh, hanging with the rough crowd because you like the rough lifestyle, uh, then, well, maybe you need to rethink what, what your motivation is. But if your desire is to be among those um, who are far away from God with the intention to build friendships and relationships, as our missionary friend Tim Westergren says, to build uh, bridges of trust that can stand the weight of truth. You have to develop trust. You have to develop a uh, friendship. You have to develop a relationship that can stand the weight of truth before you can begin to speak into a person's life about the things that are totally contrary to their beliefs and expectations. And so there is a, a sense in which we are called to go into the world, but not for the purpose of being like them, but for the purpose of bringing Jesus Christ into those situations. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is uh, in a similar kind of situation because the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, were of the opinion that if you associated with sinners and tax gatherers and, you know, and unbelievers, that uh, it was because you were like they were. And anyone who did that should be ostracized because, uh, well, you just wouldn't do that if you had the right kind of attitude. They hated tax gatherers. You have to understand part of the background there. It wasn't simply a political kind of thing. Uh, the Jews hated everything that the tax gatherer represented to begin with. They, they represented uh, an occupying empire that dominated them, uh, and they had to pay homage and taxes to Rome. They didn't like that. But the other thing was is that anyone who was a tax gatherer, the, the, Roman, the Romans were not stupid. <clears throat> they realized that in order to get the most out of their subject groups, The best way to do that was to hire people from within those groups to represent them because who better knows the mind and 
attitudes and thoughts of a, of a subset or a subculture than the people that come out from it. And yet they would look for people that were more loyal to Rome than they were to their own people. And furthermore, they would open the jobs for bid that the person who was the highest bidder would get the job because the tax collector was able to uh, take a percentage of what he recovered for Rome as his salary. Ah, but it gave him an authoritative office from which he could uh, pad the tax issue and wheedle out a little more than uh, was actually just, and he could pocket the difference because all Rome cared about was the net bottom line that they required. And so the tax gatherer was seen as a thief who operated against his own people under the protection of Rome uh, for his own gain. So you can see why they didn't like them. Uh, And tax gatherers, for the most part, didn't care one whit what their own countrymen thought of them. Uh, Their goal was just to get rich at their own people's expense. And then added to the tax gatherer issue was the idea of sinners, the the fringe of society, the low life, the people that were way outside the, the synagogue and the mindset of those who attempted to follow the law. And so in Luke 15, as as uh, Luke opens uh, this uh, section, he says that the Pharisees and the uh, scribes are observing how Jesus not only befriends tax gatherers and sinners, but he actually has dinner with them. And to go to someone's house for dinner uh, was to essentially identify with them uh, in every way, in friendship and fellowship. And, And they thought, Look at this guy. I mean, he's, he's trying to tell us the way to go, and he is building friendships among tax gatherers and sinners. He must be just like they are. And they despised him. And they tried to use this as a wedge to drive between him and the people. So Luke tells us that Jesus gave them three stories to set the record straight and to represent to them the heart of God toward people who were on the fringe of society. He said, which one of you, if you're a shepherd and you have a hundred sheep, would not leave the ninety-nine and go after one that was lost? You know, David in Psalm 23 gives us a a, a beautiful portrait of the love and care of a shepherd. And he takes us into the heart of a shepherd when he uh, describes how he makes the sheep to lie down in green pastures. Uh, He leads them beside still waters. He prepares a place in the wilderness where they can graze and, and be nourished. And he anoints their head with oil. And the image of anointing them with oil was that as the day would move toward the end, the shepherd would bring the sheep uh, together and he would inspect them. And uh, any sheep that had been injured during the day or scratched or whatever so that it wouldn't develop infection or create a problem, he would 
tend to that. He would anoint it with oil. He would care for it. He would treat the sheep. And he would uh, inspect them carefully, one by one. And that was also a time for inventory. And uh, he says, here's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he comes to the end of the group and there's only 99. He says, which one of you would not leave the 99 and go look for the one that's missing? And the shepherd does this. He leaves the 99 who are safely within the fold and he goes to find the lost sheep somewhere along the way, got off the trail, maybe went around a boulder or something and wandered off in some other Direction And the shepherd goes looking for this sheep. And when he finds him, it says he puts him on his shoulder and he brings him back to the flock and he tells all his neighbors and his friends, this sheep of mine that was lost has been found. Come rejoice with me. And Jesus says, I tell you, the angels in heaven rejoice over one lost sinner that comes home more than the 99 that are safe. That this is cause for excitement. And so, I think in that story, Jesus is underscoring for us the value of even one person who is outside the fold. That he is willing to leave the 99 who are safe for the moment and go looking for the one who is of great value. It's not like he says, oh, I've got 99, what's one sheep? No, he says, I have to find that one sheep until I have my whole flock together again. And then he says, or, 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 or like, like a woman who has ten coins and uh, she loses one. Now, the drachma, which happens to be the, the underlying Greek term, the coin that was used in this case, the drachma was approximately uh, the value of a day's wage for a skilled worker. So we try to translate that into uh, our economy. We might say it was, it was about like a $100 bill. Uh, time you take all the taxes out and everything for those ugly tax gatherers and you know you get home with your day's wage you got about a hundred dollar bill and so uh, he says this woman lost a hundred dollar bill now how many of you would not go on a search to find your hundred dollar bill uh, anybody in the room can afford just throw away a hundred bucks and, and never bother to look for it <laughs> oh no uh, it says, and remember, their homes were kind of made out of mud bricks, and they had a doorway. They didn't always have windows. They might have a window, but it would have been small and, you know, thick and uh, dimly lit interior. And, and Jesus says, uh, she loses this coin, and she lights a candle, and she gets a broom. And the image is, is the bedding, the clothing, uh, whatever furniture there is, whatever uh, she has in the house, she starts uh, upturning everything. She's sweeping out the corners. She's checking every nook and cranny. She's shaking out all of the fabrics. She's looking for this coin because it's valuable to her. And when she finds it, wow, there is great rejoicing. She calls her neighbors and she says, come rejoice with me. This coin I lost, I found it. I found my $100 bill. 
And all the neighbors get excited with her because this has been uh, so significant for her. And I think in this story, Jesus is trying to underscore for us uh, the, the father's uh, diligence, his persistence, even his desperation in finding that which is lost. He is really looking for those who have lost their way. And he will uncover everything and sweep every corner to find that lost person that is outside of the group. And so then Jesus uh, tells a little longer story about what I would like to call the Father's love. We typically refer to this as the story of the prodigal son. But really, it's more of a story about the love of God than it is about the prodigal. In some senses, all of us represent prodigals. We all, we like sheep, have turned away. Every one of us uh, has gone in our own direction. And God has laid on the iniquity of Jesus Christ uh, the sins of all of us. And, And in essential respects, we're all prodigals. But the story is really about the Father's love. And to give you again some background, in this period of time, the family uh, was uh, both nuclear and extended. Uh, they lived together. Um, you, you may not like the socioeconomic system, but it, it, it is what it is um, in that period of time. If you had daughters, um, she left home and married a husband and went to the husband's family. If you had sons, they married and brought their wives into your home. And uh, they built a room on or whatever, and they made that the, the growing extended family. It was expected that as parents aged and came to that point in time when they could not be as productive that the whole family would nurture and care for them until the time of their death. And uh, likewise, the, um, the father would provide for the household, and he would care for, for the family, and uh, his sons and his daughters-in-law and their children, and as it went, were essential to the prosperity of the whole family. And as the inheritance was passed along from generation to generation, um, it would grow. Now, obviously, there would come a time when there would be some distancing. Uh, perhaps another household would be uh, built on another part of the property or whatever. But, but over time, the family wealth was accumulated, and it was passed to the sons. And the eldest son, who was expected to fill the father's shoes in terms of providing leadership and be the patriarch of the family, received a double portion of the inheritance. And all the other sons <coughs> received half of that, or, uh, or half as much as, as the eldest. So you can do the math. If you had two sons, uh, the whole family inheritance was divided by three. The oldest got two. The, the next younger got one. If you had five sons... Uh, you divided it by six. The oldest got two shares. Everybody else got one. 
and so on and so forth until uh, no matter how many sons you had, the oldest son always got the double portion because it was expected that he would be uh, the, the inheriting patriarch, the leader of the family. I think uh, just as an aside, this is one of the reasons why um, there was some bitterness initially in Jesus' household uh, as he left to take up his ministry and mission because um, he was expected to provide leadership in the family after the death of Joseph and he left them to, um, you know, to fulfill his ministry. And uh, James, who may have been the next oldest, uh, had to bear the responsibility of stepping into that role, and, and that may have been somewhat of a turn of events for him. But anyway, this was, this was the nature of it. And the, the inheritance represented the accumulation of the father's uh, wealth and investment of his time and energies. You can follow what I'm saying by that. Your money, your savings, represents what you traded your time for. Do you agree with me? It does. It represents what you trade your time for. And your time represents what you trade your life for. So when you look at your bank account of money that you have earned, you, you, that's your life that has now been translated into economic terms. That's what you have spent your life on. And so the, the scripture literally says, the, the younger son comes to his dad and asks for his share of his dad's life. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the father and see what a tremendous emotional slam this is. Here you've got two sons, you're expecting them to carry on the family tradition, you're expecting them to, to uh, use all that you have invested yourself in wisely. And the younger one comes up and says, Dad, I want to take your life investment that's mine, and I want it now. You're just not dying fast enough. Give it to me today. And I'm going to do as I please with it. And, you know, I think parents do come to a point where, you know, they recognize, okay, I've done everything I can do. There's not any more I can say. There's not any more I can do. There's not any, I, I'm just going to have to let them have their way and uh, see how it turns out for them. And so, uh, the dad converts a third of his wealth into liquid asset, capital, cash, and he gives it to the son. And he says, here it is. Here's my life. Here's the third of it that's yours. Go do as you please. And the scripture says the son goes to a distant land. Now, that... It's one thing to say, give me all the money I've got coming. But now he, now he says, and by the way, I don't want any more to do with this family. I'm leaving this house. 
I don't even like your town. I'm going to a distant country. I'm going where the Gentiles are. I'm going to go where the high life is. Dad, I'm moving to Vegas. I mean, that's, that's kind of like what's... Uh, yours did, did he? <laughs> oh, well. But not for those reasons. <laughs> Craig's a good guy. Don't take, don't take anything wrong by that. Um, so, Dad, I'm moving to Vegas. And uh, I'm going to live it up. And so he does. And he goes and he leaves everything. Well, the scripture says, as you might expect, Jesus says he spends all his money. He wastes every single dime. He parties, he gambles it away, he drinks it up, he spends it on prostitutes, he throws every dime he's got away. Runs out of money. As luck would have it, just about the time he hits broke, there's a famine. In the land that he's living, the economy turns down, people are out of work, the crops have failed, um, there's not enough food to go around, and now he has no money, and it's a terrible economic time, and he doesn't have any way to live. And here's this Jewish boy, out of town and out of place and out of money, and he goes to a Gentile pig farmer. Now, for a Jew, that's as low down the rung as you can absolutely get. He goes to a Gentile pig farmer and he says, Can I get a job? And the pig farmer says, Well, you can go feed the hogs. And so, I mean, imagine, he's got... He's down to one change of clothing. It's wearing out. He's probably sleeping out by the pigsty. He's feeding the pigs more food than he has. He's always hungry. His stomach is always empty. And every day he's slopping his pigs with more food than he's got. And... He comes to his senses. Nothing like a little crisis to bring reality home. And he starts to think about home. And he says to himself, My dad's servants are better off than me. They have food. Their tummies are full. They have a place to sleep. They have clothes. What am I doing here? I know what I'm going to do. And he rehearses this in his mind. He makes it. Can you see the decision process? He says, I'm going to go home to Dad. I'm going to say, Dad, I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Please take me back. I, I will be a servant. I don't, I don't ask for any more. I'll be a servant in your household if you'll just give me a place to live and something to eat. I'll take, I'll take the lowest thing you've got. And he makes up his mind to do that, and he leaves the pig farm, and he heads home. Jesus says, the father is looking one day when he sees his son from a great distance. Now, you know, 
I don't think that was the only time Dad looked. I don't think that was a happy accident. I know I live in a neighborhood with a garage, so it's, it's a little hard, but if I lived in a rural agrarian region and uh, there was a pathway leading up to my door, and I had a son that was out like that and had disappeared and I didn't know where they were or if they were ever going to show up again. I didn't know if they were dead or alive. I'm quite sure not a day would pass that I didn't look wistfully down the road just wondering, will I someday see him coming back? Will I ever see him again? You know, and, and one day he can't believe his eyes. He looks down the road, and there he is. His son is coming home. I wonder how he recognized him from that distance, you know. It's probably too far to see his face. But, you know, there's family traits. There's his walk, his gait. You, you know, you can just tell. Uh, you can pick out the family uh, little giveaways that you know. Uh, that's that's one of mine. Um I love to watch the birds, and uh, the birds that I know well, uh, that you see most often around here, I can usually tell what kind of bird it is by its flight pattern. I don't have to see the color, I don't have, what, I can just watch the way it flies and kind of get an idea, well that's, uh, you know, that's this kind of a bird. I'm sure that Dad recognized the gait, he recognized the posture, he saw there was something about this fellow way down in the distance that said, this is my son, and in his heart he knew it. And Jesus said he ran to meet him. He runs down the path, he throws his arms around him, and the boys got this whole speech rehearsed, uh, Dad, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to... He can't even hardly get the words out when, when Dad yells to a servant, Bring a robe! Get the ring! Go kill the fatted calf! And he says, Oh, I'm so glad you're back. Let's have a, let's have a banquet. Let's celebrate. And he, he puts the best robe in the house on him and he puts a ring on his finger that signifies the family uh, connection. And he just embraces him with all he's got and, and hugs him all the way back to the house and gets the group together and all the family and all the servants and the fatted calf is killed and the roast begins and the dancing and the music and the house is just in this celebratory uproar. The older son's out in the field. And he starts toward the house and he hears this music. And he calls one of the servants over and he says, What's going on at the house there? He says, Well, your brother's home. You know, your younger brother, he's, he's back. And the older brother says, What in the world? I'm not going in there. This is ridiculous. And so a servant goes and tells dad, your, your older sons won't come, come inside. And so dad goes out and, and pleads with him. 
your brother's home. <laughs> he was lost. He's found. He's back. Come rejoice with us. And the older brother says, Look, all these years, all these years, I've done everything you ask of me. I've kept all your rules. I've done all the things you wanted me to do. I've, I've followed every order you've ever given. You haven't given me one scrawny goat that I could share with my friends. And here you've killed a fatted calf for this, this profligate, this prodigal, this jerk of my brother that spent all your money on prostitutes. And you want me to come celebrate? What's wrong with you? I want nothing to do with this. It's really a very sad scene. Because the father's heart is torn. He's so ecstatic. You know, I don't know how much thought he put into, this son of mine is found. He was dead, but he's alive. He was just so happy that he was back. The older brother so ticked. That dad has gone to great lengths to welcome him back. The dad says something very significant though, and I don't think we should miss this in the midst of it. He says, son, son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. How much did the younger son get? One third. Where is it? It's gone. And he has nothing. He has a robe, he has a ring, but he has nothing. His inheritance is gone. The older son gets it all when dad dies. The scripture says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But there comes a time when there's harvest. And in this case, the younger son is welcomed back home. He's in the family. He's been restored to fellowship. But one day, dad is going to die. And he is going to be dependent on older brother, who happens to have inherited all that's left. It'd be a good time, I would think, to start building, <laughs> making amends and building a relationship because he's going to be in trouble. But the point of the story has nothing to do with the consequence of wasted living. This, the point of the story really has to do with the Father's love. And Jesus, remember, is talking to Pharisees and scribes who for all intents and purposes, represent the older son. They, they keep the law. They're, they're fastidious about the law. They, they um, dot every I. They cross every T. They're so careful. But really, their hearts... You know, there's, when you think about the motivation of the younger son, was he motivated to go home by how much he had hurt his father and how much he loved his dad and how much he wanted to restore their, their fellowship? No, he was motivated because he was hungry. And the older son, why did the older son serve? What was his purpose? Well, you can get in all of the psychology of that. 
but I don't see a lot of love going on in that, that side of the equation either. Um, we, might, we might look at this and say they were a dysfunctional family, except the point of the story is that God is represented by the Father. But in the story, the significant part is the Father's yearning, the Father's longing, the Father's love. And when the prodigal returns... There's open arms. There's the robe that represents the family. There's the ring that represents the family. And even the statement of the father, this son that was dead has come to life again. And friends, when a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven more than the 99 that are righteous. There's the ring that goes on the finger in my name. In my name, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. You have the family name. He puts a robe of righteousness upon us. The past is forgiven. Our lives are, are cleansed. The fellowship is restored. And the Father's heart is so joyful that this child of mine that was lost has come back. You see the love of God represented here. Jesus is making the point, the value to leave the 99 and go find the one, the desperation to search for the lost coin, the longing, the yearning of the Father's heart, looking down the path to see the Son come back home. And there's the message of the Gospel from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. There's the message of the love of God that runs through all the thread of Scripture. Behold, I have loved you with an everlasting love. My heart is for you. Come home to me. Come back to me. For, for God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And He uh, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God's yearning, His longing, His hunger is that we come to Him. Yes, there's a day of judgment. Yes, there's a time when uh, His um, wrath and anger will be poured out upon the ungodly. Yes, there's a time when the gates of hell will open and swallow all those who have never repented and turned back to Him. But in the meanwhile, the Father is waiting and yearning and there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that turns around. Where do you fit in the story? Which one are you? And do you have in your heart the Father's heart that you will associate with tax gatherers and sinners and make friends of unbelievers and go to those who are on the fringes of society to tell them about the love of God who yearns to have them come home? It is easier in many respects to win those that know they've messed up than it is to win those that think they've got it all right.
And Jesus' point to the Pharisees is, my heart is to reach the lost. You're lost and you don't know it. But the ones that do respond to me. And this is how God views them. This is his heart for them. Father, thank you this morning for revealing to us in these stories that Jesus told the true attitude that you have toward tax gatherers and sinners, unbelievers, even the ungodly, who are lost and without hope until that time when they hear the message, the good news, and they come to their senses and they respond to the invitation, will you come home to the Father? Lord, give us your love for lost people. Not to be influenced by them or corrupted by the ways of the world, but to reach out in compassion and genuine love and genuine friendship. Not compromising the Holy Spirit within us, but loving from a pure heart those who have wandered far away from you. And we may be the only way they'll come back. Burden us with that message and that calling. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.